Till the pain is so big you feel nothing at all A working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be Hello and welcome to today's Redcast. As ever, I'm delighted and privileged to be joined by my comrade and co-host Alex Gordon. And we're all usually privileged to be joined here by Professor Tony Collins, historian, author, and emeritus professor of history at De Montfort University, research, research fellow at the Institute of Sports Humanities and also visiting professor at Beijing Sports University. Now, his books have won the Aberdare Prize for Sports History four times since 1999, and he's been a consultant to numerous TV and radio programs, including the excellent Codebreakers about Welsh rugby union players who went north to play for league clubs. He works as a historical consultant to Rugby League Cares, to Rugby League Charity, and from 2014 to 2019 was a director of the whole Kingston Rovers Community Trust, March 2018, he began the weekly Rugby Reloaded podcast on the history of rugby and the other football codes, which is highly recommended, though, of course, not quite so good as Redcast. His latest book is The Excellent Rugby League, A People's History, published in July 2020. Prolific author, but a special mention here for uh, the People's History, Rugby's Great Split, about the context of the breakaway of some northern clubs to form what would evolve into the Rugby League Code. And of course, the magnificent sport in capitalist society, which is kind of the subject of this whole Redcast series in sports, so we're particularly pleased that Tony's been able to join us. So, the first part we're going to talk about Rugby League, and the second part of the Redcast will be about the themes covered in sport in capitalist society. Tony, as people used to say, you are the best in the Northern Union. Thank you very much for being here, sir. Anything you'd like to add or subtract from that introduction? No, to say thanks for having me on the podcast, and uh, and, and I'm flattered, very flattered by the introduction. So, so no, th thanks very much. It's great. It's 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 great to be talking with like-minded people. It's a, a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed, sir. Let's go into the first question here. We're going to talk about uh, Rugby's Great Split in 1895. So, a very brief scene setting. Rugby League began in 1895 as the Northern Union, when clubs in the north of England broke away from the Rugby Football Union. The clubs wanted to compensate their working class players for a time away from work for rugby tours and injuries, the so-called broken time payments. The RFU refused, saying if men couldn't afford to play, then they shouldn't play at all. In the decade that followed the 1895 split, Rugby League made changes, setting itself apart from Rugby Union, and the two codes settled down quickly into a not really peaceful at all coexistence. Things have been a little easier since 1995, when Murdoch's money finally tempted Union away from even pretending to be amateurs, but the two codes remain quite distinct and separate. Tony, first question, to paraphrase A.A. Sutherland, the clarion journalist before the split, if playing the game for victory rather than enjoyment is the key thing, why is the gentleman player so concerned about the prospect of failing to triumph over working class professionals? So for all the high and mighty talk about amateurism, was the split basically engineered and welcomed by the upper caste leadership of the RFU that didn't like the idea of working class people taking over their game and beating them at it? Well, I'm glad you started with a quote from A.A. Sutherland, who for a short time was the rugby correspondent of the Clarion in the 1890s and was probably the most insightful writer uh, about about rugby and in general about sport at the time and yes he was absolutely right because ever since working class players and spectators had come into rugby in the late 1870s 1880s they had um, shown a capacity to be able to uh, defeat those who saw themselves as their social superiors on the pitch and you find that by the time you get to the late 1880s Clubs in the industrial north of England um, were, were regularly beating the, the top, uh, top sides in the south of England. I mean, it's often presented as, an, as a north-south thing, but what was really going on, it, it was a class thing because 
clubs in the north and the industrial north were comprised of dockers, textile workers, miners, uh, glass workers. Um, and this was really seen as a, 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 as a as a class division within the game rather than a north south thing. And so, by the t- as I said, by the time you get to the the 1880s, the the real fear of the people who led the rugby union, who uh, had almost exclusively been to public schools and to universities, was that they were losing control of rugby. Um, uh, so, th- th- a great example of how um, uh, how deep uh, or how how strong working the working class. Uh, dominance of rugby was becoming was is the case was the case that in uh, in 1888 the rugby union started a county championship in its first seven years it was won six times by yorkshire which was almost exclusively comprised of industrial workers and in the one year that it wasn't won by yorkshire it was won by lancashire which is also composed almost exclusively of industrial workers so there was this great fear that the middle classes were losing control of the game and so they introduced amateurism essentially they invented uh, amateurism for rugby and that was introduced in 1886 in a way uh, in an attempt to try and curb the influence of working class players which it didn't actually do um, and that uh, insistence on amateurism which meant uh, disadvantaging working class players who had to take time off work to play the game led to a civil war in rugby so when you say, uh, Tony, that they introduced amateurism, they didn't just um, announce amateurism, they actually introduced a series of prescriptive regulations which insisted on amateurism in every club uh, and, and forbade any element of payment for, well, what Stuart has already explained, what were, what were referred to as broken time payments. Um, so how did they enforce that? And how was that... Um, I mean, did that lead to clubs being... Uh, banned, being fined, were there, were there attempts to uh, stop players from playing? How, what was the actual mechanisms that they used? Yeah, you're right, because, I mean, today we see amateurism as a fairly benign state where you just simply don't get paid for playing the game. When the rugby, union introduced, the rugby football union introduced it to rugby in 1886, uh, they essentially banned not only payments, but any form of um, payments in kind, gifts, and alongside that, they also introduced a, a draconian regime whereby uh, any player who was found guilty of um, accepting payments or gifts in kind or whatever uh, could be suspended or expelled from the game. And clubs who were found guilty of paying players or making um, or, or giving players jobs at the club as a groundsman or something like that, that was also illegal. And so clubs would be suspended. So... Uh, so in a very real sense, there was a civil war going on. So leading players uh, were suspended for uh, being ale- allegedly being given money. Clubs were suspended. And so that played havoc with the season because clubs couldn't play a full, uh, a full season's matches. But also it damaged the, um, it damaged the, it damaged the ability of working class players to compete. And that was what the purpose of amateur regulations were. Uh, amateurism gave the middle class leadership of the rugby union the uh, the basis a structure by which they could decide who could and could not play rugby uh, and that was that's essentially what amateurism is about and it, uh, wherever it was used throughout the British Empire um, it was used as a way of defining who could play and who could not and and in, and in the context of um, this particular sport rugby. Uh, we've got to remember that this imposition of uh, amateurism uh, on the game is taking place only 30 years after the game had actually been given a name. I mean, you know, the the, uh, the sort of um, myth of uh, Tom Brown's school days and the, uh, the uh, I think the novel was 1857, um, but, you know, it's set maybe 25 years earlier. So it's it's set in the sort of post-Napoleonic uh, era, the the uh, burgeoning of uh, British global hegemony. You know, the the Britain Britain's writ ran all over the world, was unchallenged, and here you have this public school system which is claiming to have invented a game where players pick up a ball and run with it over a line. Well, I mean that's basically just a lie. <laughs> you know, the, the, these village sports existed uh, going back into medieval and probably earlier eras but it's an attempt to appropriate 
a uh, a running ball game, handball game, uh, by a particular class that's emerging in early 19th century uh, Europe, uh, in Britain, um, who have arrogated to themselves uh, a mass participation popular sport, and now 30 years later in the 1880s are attempting to stop anyone else being able to challenge their control of it. Would that be a, a, would that be a fair sort of summation? Absolutely. You're absolutely right, because the, the public schools in the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s took up football, as it was called generically, you know, uh, however it was played, um, and um, portrayed it, as you say, through Tom Brown's school days, as a, as a form of moral education for middle class young men. Um, and however, the, the, the mass uh, growth of uh, commercial entertainment, commercial sport, uh, literacy, the growth of the railways in the 50s, 60s uh, and 70s meant that uh, working class people also became uh, interested in the game and had the opportunity to play the game after the um, 1874 Factor Act, which gave people Saturday afternoons off. And so once that was introduced, interest in uh, both football and rugby just uh, absolutely ballooned. And the other interesting thing that's going on, again, if we look at it, look at it from a long view of, of British history, is that what was going on in the 1880s, that period of um, relative class peace that had been ushered in in 1848 after the defeat of the Chartists, um, that period of class peace was disappearing. And you get, uh, and so what's going on in rugby, the rise of the working class and working class self-confidence in rugby, it's kind of a manifestation of the things that are also going on in the 1880s where, with the growth of um, unskilled trade unions, uh, uh, new unionism, uh, and the growth of socialist ideas as well. So it's all, so the, the division in rugby is an example of that d deeper social and political divisions in British society. Nice one. Would you say, Tony, and this is a bit of a loaded question, that, I mean, rugby league has been challenged by rugby union continually throughout its history. Does the whole history of rugby league, what happened before and what happened afterwards, show that the, the middle classes, the bourgeoisie, the upper classes, whatever you choose to call them, they pursue the class struggle much more explicitly and much more violently than do the working class and their representatives? Yeah, absolutely. And again, rugby is an interesting example of this because although... It was working class people came into rugby, whether to play or to watch, um, because it was a form of recreation. It was a great thing to do on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, either you go to a match, uh, and you know all the all the all the match rituals in football and rugby emerged in the eighteen seventies and eighteen eighties, and so you know it became, rapidly became part of uh, you know working class cultural life. Uh, and there's that. There's a great essay by Eric Hobsbawm on the making of the English working class, 1870 to 1914, where he points out that football becomes the lingua franca of the of the British working classes in that period, and that's that's precisely what's going on. Um, so that, but on the other hand, because the um, the middle classes see rugby in particular, football similar, but not to the same extent. Rugby is seen as a uh, as, as a bastion of middle class morality of middle class life. It's a way of demonstrating the the toughness and the the skills and the essential superiority of British middle class males. And so, when that was challenged, as in every other walk of life, um, they introduced very draconian laws in order to maintain their rule in order to maintain their grip and in a lot of ways what happened in the 1890s in rugby you could see it more as a lockout by the leaders of the game than a strike by the workers in the game because at each and every stage it was the leadership of the RFU who introduced amateurism introduced increasingly draconian rules and then by 1894-1895, essentially created an, an environment where it was impossible for the for the northern clubs in particular, uh, uh, the, 
those who wouldn't uh, bow down before amateurism, it was impossible for them to continue within as members of the rugby football union. And the breakaway in 1895 that led to the formation of the Northern Union, which became known as Rugby League, um, was essentially a defensive action because they realized, the clubs realised that if they didn't leave, they would be picked off one by one and basically driven out of existence. So in a sense, the whole um, breakaway movement that led to Rugby League was a defence of uh, clubs that were, put, that were composed of and supported by working class people against an offensive by the middle class leadership of Rugby Union. And they made it very difficult for anybody playing league to have any contact whatever with anybody playing. Yes, one of the reasons why the game didn't spread in certain areas because I read something ridiculous a couple of days ago, probably in one of your books, about a little red riding hood touring troupe that played a, a, they played a rugby league game against Batley or somebody, and they all got banned from playing rugby union for life as a result of that. Is that right? Yeah, um, there was, as was quite common, uh, well, even in the 20th century, um, local pantomime, Christmas pantomime um, um, troops of, uh, of actors and actresses uh, would often play matches against local rugby or football teams for charity, a great way of raising money for local causes. And um, so the, 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 the Batley Little Red Riding of pantomime, I think maybe 1896, 1897, uh, they played a charity match against Batley and then wanted to play a charity match against, uh, I think maybe it was Goul Rugby Union team. It was Goul, uh, yeah. Yeah, and so, uh, but the Yorkshire Rugby Union uh, banned Goul from playing in the charity match, which was to raise money for a local hospital or something like that, because the, the Red Riding Hood troupe were, had actually professionalised themselves because they played against a rugby league team which is just, it's just, it's staggering. But it's, it's, it wasn't uncommon. Anyone who uh, had played rugby league, whether as a, a professional or an amateur, was banned for life from rugby union. Anybody who had been an official in rugby union, whether it was a referee or a club administrator, was banned for life. Um, even rugby union players who had um, played in, in one match for a rugby league club as a as a trial uh, or just to see what it was like will be banned for life there's a there's a great story about um which is slightly later in, in the early 1930s uh, bristol rugby union fullback who was ironically called tom brown um went went to a meeting with warrington uh, officials of warrington rugby league club who uh, uh, said, well, look, why don't you come and play rugby league? You're the England fullback. We think you do great in rugby league. And, you know, we'll offer you so much money to play and, uh, you know, we'll, uh, uh, and we'll get you a job. And he said, um, no, thanks for the offer. I'm not really interested. I, you know, I've got a good job in Bristol. That's where my family is, where my home is. Uh, I like playing rugby union. And I've never seen a game of rugby league, so I don't know what I'm letting myself in for. So he went back home, thought nothing of it. Then about three months later, he got a letter from the rugby union saying, We've heard that you've been in discussion with a um, uh, with a rugby league club. Uh, would you like to come and explain yourself to the rugby union committee? So he went to Twickenham and said, "Yeah, I had this. I had lunch with them. Uh, they paid for lunch, but I didn't get any money. I'm not interested in playing rugby league, and I've never seen a game of rugby league." And they said, "Thanks very much for your honesty. You're banned for life from ever playing rugby union again." Um, and he never saw a game of rugby league until he bought a television set thirty years later. Um, <laughs> And I think that, you know, in a sense, uh, from, where, from where, where we are almost 100 years later, it, it's kind of humorous, but it's not really. It, it, it shows the institutional power and ability of, um, of the middle classes to ostracize uh, members of their community who they feel have transgressed. Um, well, it's, it's, uh, and, it's, cult it's cultural blacklisting, isn't it? Um, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. It's, a, it's the same type of thing. And it, it's a form of McCarthyism. And there's a, the, the, the nearest example, and it's, that, that's very explicit because um, uh, when I was working on uh, doing the research for one of the Ruby League books, I, um, I went to the uh, archives of the Sports Council and discovered that they had in their papers the, the membership form uh, from Huddersfield Ruby Union Club, um, which... Um, in the form that you signed to become a member of Huddersfield Rugby Union Club, you had to attest that I am not now, nor have I ever been, 
a member of a rugby league club, which is almost exactly the same wording that McCarthy used in the McCarthyite trials in the 1950s. Stunning, absolutely stunning. C- can I just um, ask you uh, a sort of slightly tangential question about the the the, the split, which is uh, you've mentioned earlier the contemporaneous uh, things that were developing in Britain's in British society um, towards the 1880s, uh, 1890s. You mentioned the development of new unionism, uh, particularly after the the match women's strike and the and the London dock strike of 1889 and you see the then the development of this new movement which in which organizes semi-skilled and unskilled workers alongside skilled workers you see that in the railway uh, you see that in the docks you see that in a number of industries uh, so it's a clear mm, break in terms of labor movement history with the previous period which was based around craft unions and the idea that only the, the most skilled workers uh, effectively, unions were gatekeepers for um, for skilled workers to keep out the uh, the competition of semi-skilled and unskilled workers. So you get this new development in working class uh, self-organisation. But of course, you're also talking about a period when the Britain's political elite, Britain's political, the ruling class, uh, are going through a series of profound. Uh, splits over strategy around I suppose the really centrally around the question of imperialism in Britain's empire so um, just to note a couple of developments that are taking place around the same time you see uh, in the 1880s the emergence well the breakdown essentially of the laissez-faire liberalism of the early 19th century which was the you know, the doctrine of uh, of the British state and British economic policy. And that develops particularly around um, uh, after the formation of the German Empire, after the Franco-Prussian War. Uh, so, you know, after about 1871, Britain's facing a, for the first time, uh, as an industrialised nation, Britain's facing a key competitor, which is protecting itself behind tariff barriers. Uh, and so the pressure from Britain's manufacturers, the industrial capitalists, uh, who have for the previous 50, 60 years been the key supporters of the Liberal Party, the pressure starts to be asserted for tariff barriers of their own in order to protect their exports, their export markets and protect their their share of the the pie. So you get this division uh, opening up in the Liberal Party between the Liberal Unionists uh, headed or uh, led by Joseph Chamberlain, the the MP for uh, South Birmingham South, uh, and the, uh, the the laissez-faire traditionalist wing of the Liberal Party, and that develops in the 1880s uh, into a formal split where Chamberlain leads uh, about 50 Liberal Unionist MPs across the floor. Uh, and joins the Conservative administration of Arthur Balfour in 1895, the exact same year that the split takes place uh, in the Rugby Code. And so there's this split going on in Britain's ruling class at the same time. And it takes uh, a kind of, uh, it, it doesn't just take a parliamentary form, it takes a popular form in that the followers of Chamberlain uh, and Balfour <laughs> Uh, are particularly concerned to popularise the idea of empire. Uh, They need to sell this idea to the the British working class that only by having a strong empire can Britain's working class thrive. Only by having domination over uh, India, uh, Southern Africa, uh, Ireland, you know, and and I won't list the long list of countries over which uh, the blood never dried, but the... the, uh, only through the empire could the working class uh, uh, achieve um, security, uh, job security, uh, food security, etc. Now, I know this is a bit of a punt, but how do you think this big political argument that's taking place in high politics uh, is reflected in the split in the, rug- in, in, in the game of rugby? Mm, good question. Um... To some extent, in terms of the 
one of the things that's interesting in, in British sport is that the working class sports, football, you know, particularly uh, football and rugby league, they, for a variety of reasons, they don't, don't play much of an international role um, until up to the First World War. So the, fo the Football Association is very insular, so they don't really play countries beyond the British Isles. Uh, rugby league until Australia and New Zealand come into the game later on in the 1900s. There's no international connections because Rugby Union has all them. I mean, Rugby Union is, sees itself very explicitly as the sport of the British Empire and undertakes tours to South Africa, uh, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, um, so you don't get that. Um, uh, you don't get that explicit um, relationship between empire building and working class football and rugby league that you do in cricket or, or rugby union. So I think that that's a difference. In rugby league, you do see some evidence of a uh, of the split in the ruling class because uh, there's a, n a number of club administrators who who are involved in the split are actually from the um, uh, the Gladstonian wing of the Liberal Party uh, who um, see themselves as being on the side of the masses against the classes. Uh, so, for example, Harry Waller, who's the founding uh, president of the rugby league and in some ways um it's it, its earliest uh ideologue is a classic gladstonian liberal uh and who uh, says that he's on the side of the working man and he's very keen to promote the game as being a sport that can raise the uh that can raise the standards of the working class and you know give the the working class a um uh something to aspire to uh, so, so that's the way in which the the um, the, the the split in the in the British bourgeoisie is reflected. To some extent, uh, the, the other thing, although obviously these things are never clear cut, um, most of the leaders of the Rugby Football Union are Conservative Party members. Uh, so Roland Hill is the secretary, and the driving force behind the split um, is uh, is actually a Tory councillor, uh, I think, in Greenwich. Uh, and you know, almost all of the. Um, is, is, uh, is that the same Roland Hill who invented the uh, penny post? No, not no. He's but he is a relative. He's something like a um, a third generation cousin or something like that. Um, so the Rugby Football Union is very much a Tory a Tory organisation, uh, and to the extent that the 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 rugby league clubs have a pol have politics. Um, they're uh, at the initial part of the split then there's like three or four leading members who are liberals uh, but they're also lib lab liberals as well so for example in um, in Castleford Harry Speed who was a um, uh, who became who's, a, who's an international was a lib lab councillor and so he um, which makes you know, for people who don't know who are listening, uh, he was a, a, a liberal councillor, but was seen as a labour movement representative in the Liberals. And he was a trade, he was an active trade unionist and organised benefit matches for uh, for striking workers in the 1890s. Um, the other thing I think that's worth bearing in mind, though, is that in a lot of places, um, rugby league was because it was based in the industrial heartlands of the north of England. Rugby league was very closely, um, whether it wanted to or not, closely involved in the major disputes that took place in the north of England. So the 1893 miners' strike, um, two miners were shot dead uh, at Featherstone by the um, Asquith who ordered the, shoot, ordered the riot act to be read to uh, a demonstration of striking miners. In the summer of 1893, they refused to disperse and two were shot dead and uh, others, uh, others wounded. Um, at the station hotel, the one of the one of the pubs in Featherston, there's a plaque outside which uh, commemorates the the fact that the station hotel was a place where the inquiry into the shooting of the two miners were uh, was held, and was also the place where Featherston Rovers, uh, the rugby league club, which is now in the second division uh, of the rugby league competition, uh, was founded as well. So you've got that by you've got that bringing together of the the class struggle that was taking place in the 1890s. Um, you know, and so and a number of players organised benefit matches for miners and other strikers in uh, in the 1890s, and uh, you know, rugby league was just seen as part of the that overall movement of 
of the working class in the 1890s. Right. Let's talk a little bit about the game itself and how it developed. Uh, certainly in the early years of the 20th century, the game had a problem because it didn't just compete with union. It competed with um, the association code, which we'll call soccer here, though I do truly hate using that word. How did the growth of soccer, it's hard to say it without putting on a stupid American accent, how did that change the way the game developed in the early part of the 20th century, Tom? Um, well, it's interesting, uh, the point you make about soccer, which I can understand, but on the other hand, um, in rugby league places, uh, for, a, for well into the 20th century, rugby league was known as football. Yeah. So my granddad always called rugby league football, uh, which is quite confusing because by the time, you know, when I grew up in the 60s and 70s, it was football and rugby. And of course, rugby always meant rugby league. Um, yeah, um, one of the advantages that football had over rugby league was the fact that it had gone professional early in the 1880s. Um, the Football Association didn't really understand what the consequences of professionalism would be. Um, and it fairly quickly got out of hand um, in that once professionalism had been legalised in football in 1885, uh, not a single club that was made up of public school players or university educated players ever again got to the FA Cup final, which they had dominated for the previous 20 years. And that was one of the factors that meant the, the rugby union introduced amateurism because they were scared to death that this would happen uh, in, in rugby union. But so because football went professional very early on uh, and then introduced the Football League in 1888, the Rugby Union also opposed leagues as well as payments to players. So there was no National League on, and no National Cup competition in rugby, in rugby Union for, for another 100 years. Um, uh, football had a massive advantage because you could see high quality matches in league systems with the best players who were being paid to hone their skills. Uh, you could say that every Saturday of the week, whereas rugby, uh, it was um, uh, up until the split, it was uh, it was engaged in a civil war. Players were being suspended because they were suspected of being paid, um, and it was it, uh, it had no national cup competition, no national leagues, so it was really in a um, uh, it was in a sense rugby was sabotaging its own game in the battle against uh, against football and this was you know this was openly admitted uh, people in rugby people at the top of rugby said well we'd prefer that people leave our game and go and play football where they can be paid because we don't want them in our game and so, so by the time that rugby league split from rugby union football had been professional for 10 years for a whole decade and it had become um uh, basically a juggernaut um, in 1885 both ru rugby was probably on the most popular code it, it had been in the 1870s but football had started to gain ground in it but in the years of the rugby civil war between 1885 and 1995 uh, 1895 um, football had just grown exponentially uh, so I mean the best example of that is in in the space of a generation, from 1880, in 1880, the FA Cup final, I think, had an attendance of 3,000 people. The Yorkshire Cup final, which was the rugby competition held in Yorkshire, um, had something like 15,000 at a match. Um, it regularly got bigger crowds in the FA Cup final. By the time you get to 1901, there's 114,000 people at the FA Cup final between Spurs and Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, uh, rugby could not compete. Its biggest crowd was something like 30,000. So you have this massive, um, huge social, economic and cultural phenomenon that's football that in the space of a generation has basically come to dominate uh, the sporting and in general, the recreational life. Now, was this because practice. you think football was a more open sort of game? Because I mean, I still find rugby union a very turgid game now. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But football was a more open game. People understood it better. And is that the reason why they changed the rules in rugby league? Um, to some extent, I mean, I'm, I'm always I'm always slightly suspicious of um, arguments that, that talk about the the way the games are played because you know rugby of any type would have been fairly turgid in the 1880s to to, to our eyes anyway. But you know, you still get thirty thousand people to go and see Leeds versus Bradford, um, and I think 
and I, I think what what brought crowds to the game was that the uh, it, it whatever the game was, whatever set of rules that rugby or football were played under, it brought relief from daily life, from yeah. daily work, and it gave people something to identify with. Your local community was there, and you could see representatives of your local community playing your local rivals from down the road or you know in another county, and also which is not talked about uh, by most historians of sport, it also brought class in because if you were, you know, you could, up until the, the Civil War and rugby got very heated, um, you know, you could go and see a team of, uh, of miners from Yorkshire play against teams like Blackheath and Richmond and Harlequins, um, uh, you know, which is something you would never see in any other walk of life. And that's also true in football, in the, the FA Cup, you, you know, you could Darwin, a team of mill workers, could play the old Etonians and beat them. I mean, this this was absolutely unprecedented in Victorian society, and still is to some extent today. Uh, so I think there's a lot of other factors why football became so popular um, and became more popular over rugby. But having said that, once football had become popular, then yeah, that's what people expected. They wanted to see an open game. And they wanted to see a game that you could understand and identify with. And so Rugby League, um, uh, partly continuing the um, debates that had taken place before the split in rugby, the Northern clubs always wanted a more open game and thought the scoring of tries was more important and more exciting, more of a spectacle than kicking goals and having scrums. Uh, and th these are still differences between the two types of rugby today. Uh, and so they, they made the game more open, accessible and more exciting to watch. So in 1906, they changed from 15 players aside to 13 players, got rid of the rooking and the mauling when a player's tackled and introduced to play the ball, whereby you tackle, you get it, you put the ball down and play it behind you to, so, the, so the play can continue. And so that was really fundamentally um, marked out the difference between rugby league uh, and rugby union. I mean, it, it did things like get rid of the line out, reduce the number of scrums, and make the score give um, uh, make the scoring of tries more important by reducing the, the points value of goals. So all these, this was this was the response to the rise of football because it felt that you know we have to we have to present a spectacle for people that, that you know they're paying they're paying good money they want to be entertained. Uh, but it was also that I think a different way that. To some extent, this is true in South Wales, although they didn't break away. They wanted a more open, attractive game. I think it was more to do with the fact that um, the, the more open game of rugby under league or union was played in working-class areas. And I think it's because working-class people saw the game as a form of entertainment, as you know, a spectacle. Uh, I want to be entertained. I want to be excited. Uh, I want to see uh, skills on display in a way that rugby union didn't really provide in, as it had traditionally been played by people who've gone to public school or university. It's interesting that many of the changes you see in union over the last few years have made the game a little bit more like the league. Uh, I say this as a league patriot to a certain extent, but I caught some of the, the World Cup and the game between, I think, Scotland and Japan. That was like watching a good game of league. There was very little screwing about in the ruck. The ball came out nice and quick and the Super 14 that's become a lot more like league as well. So it's interesting now you see some of the union players, they could like, um, what's the guy, Sonny Bill Williamson, he can move quite smoothly between league and union because in the old days, it was a, a very, very tough transition. But let's move on to some of the, the nice things about rugby league and something which isn't talked about enough in my view here, uh, particularly as the North is getting a hard time lately from liberal people with a small L, uh, about being racist and daring to vote for Brexit, the collapse of the Red Wall, etc. Rugby League has made a huge contribution to diversity in British sport. I'm talking here about Clive Sullivan, the first black athlete in any sport to captain the British national team. Roy Francis was the first black person to coach a professional sports team in Britain and a very successful and innovative coach at that. And Alfie Lewis declaring he was gay when he played league and the overwhelmingly positive response he received. So if you can talk about all that, the background to that. Also, tell me about uh, Yiddish songs being sung on the terraces of Leeds Rugby League in the 1930s. What's the story there? Well, I think that 
rugby league has always been more open. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll preface this by saying there's still issues of racism yeah. and all the uh, all the backwardness of, of capitalist society are, 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 are still there in rugby league. Uh, so this isn't to say that it's it's uh, uh, there's no problems. However, having said that, rugby league when it was formed in 1895, um, the its founding principle really was that. Um, Anyone should be allowed to play rugby, whatever their background. Uh, they shouldn't be penalised because they can't afford to take time off work. They shouldn't be looked on less favourably because they didn't go to a certain school or a certain university. And so it had this sense that this is a game of equal opportunity. Uh, it was a game that would allow working class players to achieve their full potential as rugby players. And so that's always, that's always been part of its DNA. And so the idea that rugby league is a more democratic game than other sports again, it's always been very strong. When the game was founded in Australia in 1908, it was very much part of the labour movement. So the founding, uh, uh, many of the founding club officials were um, Labour Party members. Ted Larkin, the first full-time secretary of the Australian Rugby League, was a, um, a Labour Party MP in New South Wales. In Queensland, the other uh, state in Australia where rugby is very strong, um, the, the leading light there was a guy called Jack Feely, who was an Irish Labour, Labour Party MP, Irish nationalist, uh, an opponent of World War One? Um, in so that sense that this is a democratic game, and, and also sorry, in New Zealand, uh, the game has always had very strong links to the Labour movement as well. There, so the the idea that rugby league is a democratic game has been very important to it. And Eddie Waring, who I'm sure um, you know many listeners will remember as the rugby league commentator on BBC was always very keen on stressing that rugby league was the most democratic game there mm. was and so I think that allowed it to um, be much more welcoming and accommodating to black players going back to the 1930s in a way that other British sports weren't so for example it's important to remember that there was a colour bar so-called colour bar in British boxing up until the late 1940s, that meant if you were a black boxer, you couldn't fight for a, a British uh, a British title. Uh, rugby Union, there was only one black player ever played for England between 1871, when it first started, all the way up to 1988. Uh, the England football team didn't, get a, didn't have a black player until 1979, I think, off the top of my head. Whereas in rugby league, mm -hmm. um, uh, black players had been playing internationally for Wales and England, in the 1930s and it wasn't unusual to say to see black players playing the game many of those black players came from south wales as you say clive sullivan who captained the great britain team in 1972 when they won the world rugby league world cup was from south wales roy francis who was a, a, a brilliant coach way ahead of his time in the 1950s who coached Hull to the championship uh, in the 1950s and wembley cup finals was also from South Wales, Billy Boston, who people may have heard of from South Wales. One of the reasons why Rugby League had so many black players from South Wales is because it was an open secret in Welsh Rugby Union until, really, until the 1970s, 1980s, that no black player would be selected for the national team. And so it became uh, well known within the black community, particularly around Tiger Bay and Cardiff Stocklands, where a lot of players came from. Um, that if you wanted to fulfil your potential as a rugby player, you had to go north and play rugby league. Uh, and so that's always been, so that openness and inclusiveness um, has always been part, part and parcel of the game. And I think, again, you've got the idea that rugby league is a democratic and open game that's very much part of its DNA. But also, again, working class communities, you know, there's, as you said, there's a liberal myth that the working classes are, in the British working class is inherently racist and uh, xenophobic. And, you know, that, that's simply not true. Um, you look at um, the way that Paul Robson uh, was received in, in South Wales in the 1930s and 1940s, but essentially became a, a national hero, South Wales working class. And there's a, there's a famous book called Call Is Our Life, which is a sociological study of Featherston, uh, Featherston miners in the 1950s, that also makes the point that for people in Featherston, stories about uh, the fight against racism in America and the civil rights movement were very powerful because they, sh they felt a shared sense of, uh, of oppression and discrimination. So, that, so, so I think rugby league also 
um, embodied that type of spirit as well. And that's also, and again, so that, that's also, as you said, meant that um, rugby league, and again, this is not to claim that there are no issues, but rugby league has, has been a place where rugby league players come out as gay um, than than soccer, which given the you know, given the, um, the the huge discrepancy in the number of players playing, um, is it, um, it's quite surprising. So as you say, um, what's his name? Alfie Gareth Thomas, the Welsh rugby union player, came over to play rugby league. Um, uh, in the what ten years ago, um, more recently Keegan Hurst, who uh, played for Batley, Wakefield, Halifax, just retired, uh, came out uh, to know um, uh, the the greatest um, one of the greatest comments that he, that he made was that when he uh, when he announced that he was gay, uh, one of his teammates sent a, a text to him saying, "Changes now, mate. Didn't didn't make any difference." And even going back, and I know, uh, and I don't want to inadvertently out, out, but certainly in, in the 1940s, there were players who were known as, as being gay uh, in the game uh, and you know, were selected to play at the highest international levels. This would, have, this would have been players who were, I mean, given that homosex, male homosexuality was illegal until 1967, these were people who were known to be out gay rugby players in rugby league well the example i'm thinking of as i said i won't give a name because it's not my place to out anybody um the example i'm thinking of was um uh, a, a player who played for wigan and played at international level and it was well known within the wigan community um that although they didn't use the term in the 40s or 50s that he was gay um and i think there's there's a really interesting book uh, that was written by a woman called helen smith maybe three or four years ago about working class attitudes to homosexuality up until the 1960s. And, and she found through a series of interviews with, you know, uh, uh, with gay men at the time and you know, studying, um, studying the newspapers at the time, that by and large, you know, people thought, so what? Live and let live. Um, and this was the case uh, within rugby league as well. I mean, certainly, again, in the... Yeah, it's it, it, it's not public enough, but I think anybody who was a rugby league supporter in the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s would have also known uh, of a, a relatively high uh, you know, player of high prominence who, within the game, was very open about uh, about being gay. Uh, it's just that he chose not to publicise the fact. So there was never any... Um, um, and with... You know, the fear that... Uh, gay players having about coming out in soccer and what might happen to them in the press or through crowds um, doesn't appear to have been the case with uh, within within uh, within rugby league. But, uh, sorry, I said Alfie Lewis. Alfie Lewis is quite a famous kickboxer who is not gay. So sorry about getting mixed up there with my uh, great sporting athletes. Uh, tell us about the Yiddish songs on Leeds before we move on. So I love this little story. Oh, yeah. Well, one of the interesting things is, again, and this goes back to the sense of rugby league being an open game, is that in, in the uh, 1890s, early 1900s, a great wave of Jewish immigration fleeing Tsarist pogroms, anti-Semitic pogroms in, in Tsarist Russia. And yeah, many of them uh, uh, stayed in the north of England, in a whole Manchester, Leeds. Uh, and so... Because they were part of working class communities, they, they in many places became, you know, the, the cl clubs in those uh, cities had very strong Jewish followings. So um, uh, in Leeds in particular, uh, uh, Jewish uh, spectators and players uh, were very common within the game. And so at one point in the, 19, uh, in the 1930s, um, Leeds, who play at Headingley, um, had a, well, still do have a sizable uh, proportion of Jewish supporters. And I've, I've been told by uh, Jewish supporters who are old enough to know that, that in the 1930s, occasionally people would break out into, into Yiddish songs on the terraces. Um, there was even, um, there was a, um, a schoolboys cup uh, a rugby league cup that was played for by schoolboys in Leeds in the 1930s was the Eli Jacobson trophy that was donated by local um, 
uh, Jewish businessman who'd been a player in the uh, 1890s and 1900s. And up to this day, um, Leeds and the two home clubs still have, um, uh, you know, you know, relatively significant Jewish followings. Oh, sorry, Alex, on you go, mate. No, no, I was, I was just going to um, note how uh, Hull was the uh, onward point for the Red Star Line, which operated from Antwerp uh, in the 19th century and was the main shipping line uh, for Jewish uh, migrants, refugees fleeing from um, Tsarist Russia and Tsarist uh, pogroms. And the Red Star Line promised to take you to the new world but what it actually did was it took you to Hull and then you had to make your way across on the uh, railway to Liverpool where Cunard or one of the other shipping companies took you on to New York but of course many people decided uh, to stay in Hull or to move not too far away to Yorkshire where there was plenty of work and textile industry and uh, all the rest of it. Uh, it's just it always amuses me when I, uh, you know, you you, you uh, think about people fleeing from uh, this uh, appalling persecution to the new world and um, ending up in what was definitely not the new world, but making quite a good fist of it uh, anyway in uh, in Hull and Leeds and other parts of Yorkshire. Same thing happened with uh, people in Dundee, quite a big Jewish population, uh, Dundee as well. They thought they were going to get to America. They were dropped off there. I mean, I've, I've been told by, I, I've, been, I've read or been, been told by historians somewhere that uh, many people actually thought when they reached Hull, they were in America. And um, it took some time before the penny dropped. <laughs> Someone who comes from Hull, it's an easy mistake to make. <laughs> Uh, Tony, we need to go ahead and wrap up quite quickly on this section of the of the Redcast. Can we talk a little bit about the future of the game as you see it? And um, the Toronto Wolfpack fiasco has caused me particular anger because it seems to be one more facet of the regular struggle against successful expansion. What do you think about the Wolfpack situation itself and also about the possibility of a side from Toulouse joining the Super League? Um... I think, well, I think it's a tragedy that the Wolfpack were lost because they, um, you know, to establish a team in, in Toronto um, and then to get, you know, crowds of 10,000 to games in, in the last season when they, when they did really well and establish a real community of people who love the game. Um, it's, a, it's an absolute tragedy and, and a disgrace that that's been lost and thrown away. Um, and I think to some extent there's a... Um, Again, bring it back to rugby league's roots. There's always been in rugby league. There's always been a kind of tendency between uh, two tendencies: one of people who want to see the game expand and build on its strengths, and other people who say, "Well, we, you know, no, 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 we've got to stick to our heartlands." Other people are interested, and there's merits in both these. But I think to, for a lot of people who are opposed to seeing the game spread, I think a lot of that comes down to a kind of deference that rugby league should know its place. It's a northern working class game and people should know their place. And this came out very strongly, I think, in 1995 when rugby league um, um, transformed itself, thanks to Murdoch's money, to, to become Super League, switched to playing in the summer. Now, the, the Murdoch money is an interesting... Yeah, that's another question which we can get into at another time. But one of the things that was very interesting was that in the press at the time, a lot of people, a lot of... Uh, national newspaper uh, sports journalists said, oh, this is ridiculous. Why should rugby league have any aspirations to spread around the country uh, or change? Because it's a northern game. It's played in the north. It's by working class people. We want it to stay the way it is. And I think that, which basically is an expression of the way that uh, uh, many, you know, people in national media see the working class wherever it is. And I think that's, to some extent, that's imbibed within certain sections of rugby league. And I think that's something of what was going on uh, with, the wolf, with the wolf pack. Um, it seems to me, from my personal view, is that um, clearly it's very difficult to expand the game, but it's not impossible. Um, and that rugby league 
in a sense, rugby league's DNA is about equality of opportunity and diversity. And there is nothing that is more fashionable in world sport today. I think that gives the game uh, an incredible opportunity to promote itself in that way. Whether the, um, uh, the, the powers that be in the game say it like that is, is, another, is another matter. Look um, at the inc- sorry to butt in, but look at the incredibly yeah. successful expansion into Melbourne. All right, yeah. well away from the game's roots in New South Wales and Queensland. And Melbourne, of course, is the home of Aussie rules, which is huge in Melbourne. But Melbourne have become one of the most successful franchises across there. Is this because they don't have that, oh, little us working class mentality uh, in Australia? And they think we're going to go in there and make it work. Well, uh, to some extent, certainly the people who run the Melbourne Storm um, uh, didn't have that attitude. I mean, you, you can still, one of the interesting things, and I think this is true of all sports, that they all have their own ideologies. So wherever rugby league's played, you always get that tension between those people who say, oh, we should now place. Let's just stay here. And the people, other people in the game who say, yeah, let's say, no, 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 we've got to expand. Whether it's in Sydney, Auckland, even Papua New Guinea, the same, same debates go on. So, uh, so yeah, Melbourne proves that it is possible to, uh, to expand into what is, you know, previously very hostile territory for rugby league um and toronto i think one of the reasons why toronto was successful is because there was no preconceived uh, prejudices against rugby league there's no you know rugby union isn't strong so people don't see rugby league as an inferior brand of rugby because of the way the media treats it um they so they, they accepted rugby league on its own terms and it was successful Let's talk very briefly now about the possibility of expansion into Toulouse. I'm a big fan of French Rugby League. Tell us a little bit about the background to Rugby League being banned uh, and the strange, it's banned in France by the Vichy regime, and the strange cult of amateurism that seemed to prevail behind that, the reasons for that ban, and that will take us nicely into a discussion of sport and capitalist society. Well, rugby league came to France in nineteen in the early nineteen thirties. In nineteen thirty four, the first games were played, and the French league was established. Um, it, it, it kind it, similar processes, not quite the same, but similar processes that would that had happened in uh, English rugby that led to the split were also taking place in in French rugby union that it effectively led to a split. That players were uh, there was increasing demand from players that they should be paid. Uh, the rugby union authorities were very concerned by that. They want to keep the game amateur. And uh, there are also, cons- the French rugby union authorities were also um, uh, under pressure from uh, English rugby union, from the RFU to, um, uh, to kind of cleanse itself. And they'd been suspended from international competitions. So rugby league took off in France very quickly. And by the time you get to 1938, um, there are almost uh, as many rugby league clubs in France as there are rugby union clubs. And if the war hadn't broke out, um, all serious commentators, whether they're from rugby league or rugby union background, admit that rugby league would have overtaken rugby union. Um, however, uh, in ni- 1939, World War II breaks out, 1940, uh, uh, France collapses. Uh, the Germans occupy the north, take Paris, occupy northern France. Southern France is ruled by a collaborationist Vichy government led by uh, Marshal Pétain. And they um, reorganise French sport along amateur lines. Uh, they ban professional sport, so there's no professional soccer, but they also ban all forms of rugby league and force its clubs to join rugby union and rugby union takes over all assets of uh, rugby league the reason there's a couple of reasons for this one amateurism is well as, as we talked about very early on amateurism is a is a is a means by which you can exclude and control players and so amateurism was was the um the sport, the mode of sporting operations for all fascist and right-wing regimes in Europe in the 1930s. So the Nazis imposed amateurism on all German sports uh, and all those right-wing regimes uh, in, um, uh, in Eastern Europe also imposed amateurism. Uh, and French Rugby Union ended up playing um, Germany, Romania and right-wing nations uh, in the 1930s. So it kind of shows where the the ideological bias of French rugby union was. Um, at the same time, uh, rugby league, although it wasn't 
um, political in itself. Rugby league was seen as part of the, the movement that led to the Popular Front in France, uh, Popular Front government being formed in 1936, because it was seen as a rebellion against the established order, against what many saw as traditional French virtues. And um, it also was support, it, rugby league suffered, as you might imagine, a lot of discrimination as it was trying to establish itself. It was banned from municipal grounds and things like that. So when the Popular Front government was elected in 1936, uh, Leo Lagrange, who was the sports minister, actually gave significant help to, to, to rugby league to allow it to play on in municipal stadia, uh, actually attended an England-France international match and kind of gave a seal of approval to rugby league that the previous French governments ha hadn't done. So in the eyes of the, the, um, the French right wing, who essentially formed the, the Vichy government, not only was rugby league a threat to you know, amateur rugby union, uh, it was also seen as part of the, that movement that had led to the Popular Front and all the problems that they saw in uh, in France. So it was um, it was rugby league was the banning of rugby league was part of the French right's uh, revenge revenge against everything that happened in the nineteen thirties. Was it so, also seen as a as a form of Catalan nationalism? Um, Perhaps that's not really that, that's not really clear. One of the things that's interesting though is that the obviously the, the Castellan Dragons, who are the team that play in Super League, are very uh, who are based in Pepinon uh, in French Catalonia, are seen very much as a representative um, the Catalan nation in both France and Spain. And there's also significant numbers of players who play rugby league um, with. Um, with Spanish roots, and a number of those trace their roots back to um, um, Spanish Civil War veterans who fled from Franco into southern France uh, in 1939. So um, I think it's the case that the owner of the Catalans, I think his, his grandfather, uh, fled from Franco. Uh, I'm I can't I'm not certain about that, so don't quote me, but certainly that's not an, that's not unusual. In, in French rugby league, would it? I mean, there's there's also uh, you've made the uh, explicit comparison between the ethos, the the amateur ethos of Vichy France and Nazi Germany and other um, fascist aligned states in Italy, Romania, etc. At that time, uh, but is it not also the case that in the context of Vichy France, uh, the cult of amateurism is also associated with the uh, the the church and and the fact that in terms of French politics from you know the from the French Revolution onwards um, that the church is the bearer of the reactionary uh, position in French politics and within the context of Vichy France in the nineteen forties that meant that the ethos of amateurism was given a religious um, uh, a specifically religious context uh, in that it was argued that the the body uh, with which you play rugby or or, or any sport you know is a god given a, a, a god is that your god given god created uh, body uh, and that by playing sport you are honoring god you should be uh, therefore playing sport for uh, pure reasons of amateurism and if you to accept were to accept money for playing sport that was effectively sacrilegious you were an you were offending against god so it's not only the bullshit uh, amateurist uh, ideology of the british bourgeoisie uh, that is present here in vichy france there is an additional layer of religious obscurantism uh, which is a justification for imposing this uh, amateur um, ethos as well i think yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's, it's all wrapped up in the idea of what traditional France is about. Uh, and that Vichy tries to restore this mythical um, traditional France, La France Profonde, um, which is all about, you know, you have family, church, work. Um, and rugby league is seen as something that is... Uh, uh, you know whether it likes it or not was seen as something as as opposed to that uh, 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 and subversive and in a sense that's still the way that French rugby league fans see themselves today 
there is no place where the um, the hostility between league and union is stronger than in southern France. Um, you know, the, the French rugby league fans do not want to see the French rugby union team win. Uh, which is to some extent, it's, you, you still get you get that a little bit in uh, in Britain with the rugby league fans not supporting the English rugby union team, but in France, it it runs really deep. And oh, they mean it. Those guys mean it. That's one of the reasons yeah, why yeah. I'm a big fan of French rugby league myself. They still fight the fight with a good partisan and aggressive feel about it. Absolutely, absolutely, gentlemen. I think we need to go ahead and take a little break. Nice, thank you very much indeed, there, Tony. I think rugby league, uh, like we discussed earlier, is a great prism through which to look at uh, British and European history as well. And you've certainly demonstrated that today for us. Thank you very much indeed. And second part of the podcast, we will talk more generally about sport in capitalist society. Gentlemen, thank you both very much indeed.